The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, and may you see good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Harper. So before I get to the sermon, uh, again, I want to remind us that today is what we're calling Sending Sunday, and uh, we're focusing on a lot of aspects of how God sends us out into the world in the same way that He sent Jesus Christ to us. Um, and part of our sending model uh, includes planting a lot of churches. Uh, we at Christ Presbyterian are behind uh, a lot of churches globally. Uh, as well as uh, uh, domestically in the uh, North American continent and also here locally, uh, we, uh, we send resources and prayers and relationship and energy and uh, even people to uh, churches that, we don't e- that, 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 that aren't Christ Presbyterian churches, uh, other PCA churches, uh, as well as uh, cross-denominational congregations. We uh, value participating in God, adding more churches to metropolitan Nashville. We also, as the video mentioned, have a multi-site strategy, which means there is a plan over the next couple of decades to plant uh, a number of Christ Presbyterian church congregations. We have, of course, this one at Old Hickory Boulevard. We have one uh, in the music area, Vanderbilt neighborhood, uh, uh, pastored by Stacy Croft. It's been up and running for uh, a couple of years now. And uh, on October 7th, I want you to know uh, that we're going to launch officially services for Christ Presbyterian Church Cool Springs uh, under Russ Ramsey's leadership. So please continue to pray for that uh, and uh, um, be encouraged that this is what you're part of. And uh, so uh, now for this sermon. Uh, I would like to uh, once again acknowledge what we every now and then acknowledge here, and that is that, that, that one of the, the most precious things about the Bible is how honest and hopeful it liberates us to be as human beings, and um, especially love its honesty. The Bible invites us not to whitewash over the fact that the world is a hard world, uh, it's a broken world. It's a world in which things have gone wrong, and uh, Pastor David has referred to that earlier on in the service, and he referenced Romans 8, uh, where it talks about how uh, every person, every place, and everything is experiencing this dynamic of groaning, uh, of, uh, of, of being subject to what Romans 8 calls decay. Decay. This is true of us as human beings. Eventually, we're all going to experience fatigue, pain, disease, memory loss, 
uh, failing body parts. Uh, we still haven't been able to improve the mortality rate. Uh, it's one person for every one person. And so, decay is true of us. It's also true of the physical world in which we live. Uh, physics uh, teaches us about the second law of thermodynamics, which means that, that everyone and everything is losing energy all of the time. Uh, did you know that the sun uh, that we get our heat from and our light from, the sun actually has an expiration date uh, in the future. Eventually, it's going to flame out like a match. And when the sun flames out like a match, we're told by scientists that, that planets like Earth and the other planets in our solar system are going to vaporize. They're going to go boom and, and just, just vaporize as dust into the atmosphere. The physical world's breaking down. Uh, we're breaking down psychologically and emotionally. A, a few years ago, about three years into my time as senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian, I, I disclosed uh, openly um, my struggles over the years with uh, anxiety and depression. And uh, I had a man come up to me after that service and said, you know, I've really appreciated you being my pastor for these first three years, but this is really the day that you became my pastor because you, you said some things about yourself that, that, that helped me to understand that, that you and I are a lot more the same than we are different. And uh, that person, if the statistics are correct, that person represents about 35% of you uh, who also experience anxiety and depression. And uh, that is because our spirits are subject to decay. Relationships are subject to decay. If, if we don't tend carefully to our relationships, if we don't tend them like a garden, they're going to erode. This is true of marriage. This is true of parent-child relationships and sibling relationships. It's true of friendships. It's true of work relationships. It's true of churches. Constant investment. Uh, otherwise, relationships will erode. Anytime uh, different races get together with, a, with, a, with an intention of moving toward one another and seeking greater understanding and building diverse community with one another. If you've ever been part of those kinds of initiatives, as many of us at Christ Pres have been and are currently and will continue to be, it gets awkward. Uh, even with the, the grandest intentions, uh, people unintentionally hurt one another's feelings, saying things that, that, that they didn't even know were insensitive because of cultural differences and, 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 and background differences and everything else. So, cross-racial or cross-cultural or cross-economic uh, differences, uh, cross-relationships up and down the orchard, they are difficult and complex and need tending to all the time or they will erode and divide. People are lonely. You know, in January of this year, uh, the UK, uh, the government in the UK uh, instituted a new position called the Minister of Loneliness. The Minister of Loneliness. How do we face this decay? There are three strategies, uh, to speak in general terms, there are three strategies that people use to uh, to face the decay. And the first strategy is 
to not face it, to deny it, to whitewash over it, to put a happy face on hard things, to uh, treat your life like, an, like your Instagram feed, where, where everything's a highlight reel, everything uh, is, is presented with the most positive, happy spin, even reluctant to sing worship songs that are in a minor key and that talk about sadness and lament like almost all of the Psalms do. There's something about us that feels like, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's uh, subhuman or, or, or less than ideal to cry and to get angry at the state of things, and so we put on a happy, clappy, celebratory uh, sort of demeanor even during those seasons when we're dying inside. So we can deny it. We can, we can not face it, or we can face it, but resign to it and get cynical and pessimistic. What's the point? And so on. Or the third way to face the decay is to treat it. You know, Jesus presents Himself as a physician. Uh, and as His people, as His church, that means that we are both patients and workers in His hospital, all at the same time. And when He uses metaphors like the ones we're looking at today, salt, light, and city, one of the things He's saying is that when people in the world are in crisis, the church is my ambulance, my first responders to a hurting world. And when people out in the world are hurting, the church is my hospital that is there to receive and mend and provide healing and touch in the same way that I touched lepers and healed them, in the same way that I touched you and healed you. And when people are doing okay, the church is meant to serve as a wellness center or as a gymnasium where people can, can stay healthy and continue to cultivate health and continue to cultivate strength, especially spiritually, but also holistically in every other way. And so, so I'd like to talk about all of this. I'd, talk, I'd like to talk about what it means to be the sent ones out into the world to do three things, to fight decay, to lift the mood, and to construct many homes. And so, so first, to fight decay. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and that would have landed in a couple of different ways. There's, there was, in those days, a medicinal quality to salt, where if a person had a wound, uh, you would put salt on it. It would sting a little bit, but, but it, would, it would prevent infection. It would, it, would, it would fight potential decay and infection. Salt was also used as a preservative with perishable foods. And so, if, if you had a, a piece of, uh, I don't know, a piece of meat, uh, you, um, you know, we were out at a steak dinner last night with some friends, and one person said, if, if God wanted people to be vegetarians, then why did He make cows out of meat? Um, thought that was pretty funny. Um, must have a lot of vegetarians, or my comedic timing is really poor this morning. But um, in any event, what you would do to preserve that meat was you would surround it with salt. That would, that would slow down the decaying process for perishable goods. And so, so, if you take the metaphor and apply it to life out in the world, 
Christians are meant to be blockers of decay. We are meant to fight against it. There's an aggressive component to being a Christian, but it's, it's not the kind of aggression that we're, we're accustomed to hearing about on cable news. You know, to do its work, salt has to come into contact with the wound or with the decay or potential decay that it's there to treat. They didn't have refrigeration technology. They didn't have freezers. And so, touch it with salt. Douse it with salt or season it with salt. Otherwise, you're going to have a negative effect. And so, so first century Rome, here's the setting into which this parable was spoken. It was a secular society. And yet, being a religious person or a religious community was entirely acceptable as long as Caesar held your first loyalty. As long as Caesar held your first loyalty, you could be as religious as you want. Just keep it private. Keep it personal. Don't let it affect your public life. And, and, and you had a couple of groups that responded to this environment in different ways. You first had the Sadducees, and the Sadducees you could call the, 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 preser- the self-preservationists. The Sadducees were like, um, you know, the, the people, the chefs, who had salt in a shaker and never used it. They just left the salt in the shaker, and, 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 and so their salt never impacted anything. It never brought out the best of, any, of anything because they kept it hidden. The strategy of the Sadducee was self-preservation. Don't rock the boat with Rome. Blend in. Look as much like Rome as you possibly can. Be of the world. Be of the culture so that you don't get stung by Caesar. But in terms of influence, in terms of impact, in terms of their ability to, to be a preservative in the world, it backfired. You know, Garrison Keillor uh, had this statement about churches that, that try to be relevant to the world by becoming indistinguishable from it. He said this, the attempts of the church to modernize its message and to look and sound more like the world are almost always foolish and counterproductive. It's true. I mean, just look at the decline of the mainline liberal church. It's declining rapidly. The only churches that are growing in the Western Hemisphere are those who have stuck to the Bible. The only ones. The only ones that are continuing to grow are the ones that are willing at certain points, even at cost to themselves, to live counterculturally in some ways. But then you've got the Pharisees on the other side. Their response to Rome, rather than being self preservation, was self righteousness. And so, instead of keeping the salt in the shaker like the Sadducees, they dumped it all out, but they didn't let it touch anything else on the plate. The Pharisees were the separatists. We will, we will build our own subcultures over here on this side of the plate. But the problem with a side dish that is only salt, you, you know what the problem is. You know, the, 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 you know, the movie, the song goes, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the, the medicine go down. But if you if you take a spoonful of salt, it, it's bitter, and it's going to make your blood pressure go up, and, and that's what happens when you have communities of grumpy saints. And so, being counterculture doesn't mean being a jerk for Jesus. It doesn't mean policing the world, 
morally or ethically or, or otherwise. Doesn't mean being a stick in the mud like the Pharisees were. The only remaining response to Rome was the Christians, and they were actually the influencers, especially in the first three centuries in Rome. A life-giving minority, not a moral majority, not a power-driven moral majority, but a life-giving prophetic minority. That's what the Christians were. C.S. Lewis described them this way, Christianity at its best is a fighting religion. It thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world and that God, uh, that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. The fight that the Christians fought was a fight for the world, not against the world. It was a fight for the culture, not against the culture. It was a fight for the hearts of their neighbors, not against the morals of their neighbors. You see? It's a different kind of againstness. It's not against people. It's against toxicity that hurts people. Toxic beliefs, toxic behaviors, toxic whatever. To be salty is to love Rome better than Rome loves Rome. And that is how Christians, as a prophetic minority, had greater influence over the course of those first three centuries A.D. than all of the power and resources of the aggressive, bully Roman Caesars. It was amazing. How did they do this? One example was when the plagues happened. People were afraid of the contagion, and so they were throwing even their own family members out on the streets so that other family members wouldn't catch it. And, and what happened? The, the Christians, at risk of their own lives and sometimes at the cost of their own lives, went out in the streets and took Roman people into their own homes to care for them, to tend them, to touch them as Jesus touched the lepers. Girls, girls were tossed out. When you heard that you had had a girl for many fathers, it was a disappointment in Rome. Can you imagine that? As a father of two girls, I can't imagine that, but that's the way that things were. You know, there's, a, there's a letter from a Roman businessman. It was just sort of cavalier to his wife. Hey, how's, hope you're doing well. He was traveling, and he writes, writes a letter home. It's been preserved through, the, through history and archaeology, and it says, um, you know, hope everything's going well at home. My business trip is, is going well. I look forward to seeing you soon. Oh, by the way, uh, I know the baby's about to be born. If it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw it out. And in comes the Christians, pulling those baby girls out of the dumpsters and adopting them into their own homes, as many of you have, loving them to life. Women were objectified, used, and discarded. But the Christians treated women in the same way that they treated the men, with dignity, respect, and honor. If you were a widow in Rome and, and, and you didn't have any children surviving you, 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 were, you either had to be a prostitute or you would die of starvation. 
And in comes the Christians, and, and, and they would say, well, you, we'll be your family. We'll be your sons and your daughters. We will take care of you. And the widows were, were highly esteemed and loved and protected. The poor, instead of being discarded and disdained, were honored. Prostitutes and crooks and blasphemers were given a message of hope that this is a community, this is a family where love is assumed, not earned, where love is your starting point, not your goal toward which you have to strive and which you have to achieve. There are no scarlet letters in here, said the Christians. And by the time the third century A.D. came around, the fabric of the Roman Empire was completely transformed by the Christians. And then in came Constantine and, and, and adopted and co-opted this popular movement now of Christianity into the government, and then it died. The salt lost its savor. Both the church and the state plummeted when the church and state got in bed together. Life-giving, prophetic minority we fight decay, but we also lift the mood. Tim Keller talks about how Jesus paints a vision for living so beautifully that people around you who don't believe as you do will eventually be unable to imagine the world without you. You know, food without seasoning, I mean, can you imagine the rest of your life? You were told you can't put any seasoning on your food ever again. It would, it would have this blanding effect on, on your diet. But when you touch it with a little bit of salt, when salt is the minority ingredient that, that, that comes in and that touches the food, it brings out the potential. It, it brings out the very best of what's in there. And so what I'm going to do, instead of giving you a whole bunch of, 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 of specific examples right now, I want to ask you to use your imagination around a few questions that I prepared as our application for this thought. What would it look like for Christians to move into a neighborhood and have such an impact that, that, that all the people in the neighborhood, because the Christians have moved in, are feeling more known, more loved, and more welcomed? What would it look like every time Christians entered a restaurant for the mood in the entire restaurant to be suddenly lifted for at least the hour or two that the Christians are there? What would it look like for Christians to join a company? And because the Christians join the company, the morale goes way up. I can't believe I get to work for a boss like this. I can't believe I get to work alongside peers like this. I can't believe I could get to, get to have people working for me like this. They make it so easy to do my work. You know, my first interview out of college was, was for a management position at a business, and uh, the one and only question that was asked to me by the, the interviewer was, what is your main goal in life? And, you know, as a newly uh, minted, zealous, brand new Christian, my answer, of course, was, well, to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. And he said, well, um, are you sure you're interviewing for the right kind of job? And, you know, I think the answer should be yes. I think that it's possible if we started leaning into this Salt Lake City reality to which Jesus has called us, that things like Christian and Bible reader and churchgoer could actually become more attractive 
on a resume than Eagle Scout or graduate of Harvard University. It should be that way. It's not, but it should be because we have the resource. We have the one who has salted us and, 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 and shed his light into our hearts and, and, and included us in, in citizens of his abiding, heavenly, glorious city with all of the promises. Why wouldn't we become life-giving people in all the places where we live, work, and play? Or every time a Christian shares on social media, people's day gets better instead of worse. People get less angry and defensive instead of more because of what you put out there. See? It's just basic life. It's just a different posture toward the life you're already living. Salt and light. Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The, the, the Greek here is kalos, which means beautiful. Beautiful works. Let them see your beautiful works. Let your life be delicious. to the people that you come into contact with. You know, Madeline Langle said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. And he says, you're the light of the world. The function of light is to overcome darkness, which in spiritual terms, that means it means to overcome sin and the effects of sin. It means to overcome life without God and the effects of life without God. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, God cannot, here's one thing God cannot do, God cannot give us a happiness apart from Himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. But with God, there is happiness and joy and levity and peace and mirth and dancing. It's the Lord of the dance, right? You 60s and 70s music people know that. You know, I think the Lord gave us a gloomy day today, a rainy day, uh, to maybe give us an object lesson. There's this thing called seasonal affective disorder, SAD, S-A-D, seasonal affective disorder. It's this depressive uh, state that many of us enter into, especially in the winter months, when we're indoors more than we're outdoors, and when there's this uh, removal of natural light from our lives, it creates a sadness because the function of light, part of the function of light is to lift the mood and to awaken us. Now, how can Christians be a light in the world? I, I think every generation, every culture, there's a different secret weapon that God gives to Christians to be light to their decaying culture. I think for us, the secret weapon is kindness. We live, and the New York Times has written all about this in multiple essays and articles and op-eds, we live in an outrage culture. We live in a time where everybody seems to be looking for something to be offended by, a mob to join, where, where, where my friends are, are really not my friends. They, they, they're my friends because we're, we're, uh, we're together, uh, united around whoever our common enemy is. We live in a culture of outrage. What, what would it look like for Christians to just peace out on the outrage culture and then peace in to what it means to be humble and kind? I'll start with kids and teenagers. You want to have friends 
be one. Be one. You know, a lot of times, I'll tell you what I did when I was a teenager. I did a whole lot of things in order to get, try to get people to like me, but they would make me like myself less. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. It is always better to be humble and kind than it is to be popular and cool, especially when being popular and cool requires you to be something other than humble and kind. Nice guys finish, la- uh, uh, finish first? That is actually true. That is actually true. In the end, those who enjoy the favor of all the people, as it says in Acts chapter 2, are those who move out into the world with kindness as their secret weapon. So last night, we, several of us, got to celebrate a friend. We got together with the, the intention of and the purpose of celebrating a friend for his life and, and how his life has impacted ours. And um, we offered to him uh, for several minutes what, what I called a couple of weeks ago living eulogies. I mean, my, my theory is that Christ wants us to start eulogizing each other before we die instead of after the fact. To, as, as Ann Voskamp often says, speak words that make another soul stronger. And so, so we did that last night. No sarcasm, no digs, just living eulogies to all the different ways that this person has impacted our lives. And, and um, it felt to me as I left, and I, I leaned over to my wife, I said, I, I said this, this really felt like a taste of heaven tonight. Because you know, Jonathan Edwards talks about heaven as a world of love. Why not cultivate that? Why not be counterculture in that way? Why not not just reserve those kinds of living eulogy moments for us and our families and our Christian friends, why not actually go out into work and the neighborhood and the places where we recreate, restaurants? Why not look for opportunities all the time to offer a living eulogy to the person in front of us, just to look for something to praise? We can easily look for something to criticize. Why don't we reverse that? See what happens. That might actually be a trigger for revival in our context, in our time and day, just to go out and frickin' be kind instead of looking for something to be offended by all the time. It costs you nothing, and it can gain a whole lot, both for you and for the kingdom, to love Rome better than Rome loves Rome. And then we construct many homes you know, the local church is God's plan A, it's His plan B, and it's His plan C. It's, it's His plan Z. You're the salt. You, the church, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. There, there's supposed to be a blanketing effect. When I send my people out, I want them everywhere. That's why we plant churches. That's why we give away people. That's why we give away money. We plant churches because God wants to blanket the city of man with representatives, with ambassadors and embassies from the city of God so that this kind of stuff happens in every kind of neighborhood. That's why we do it. That's why we're committed to it. I hope you're as excited as we are. Did you know that Nashville is not the buckle of the Bible belt anymore? Why plant churches in a City with all these churches. Well, because 75% of the people who live here don't go to a church. 75%. 
You can't ask people where do you go to church anymore because three out of four times, you're either going to get nowhere or a lie. 75% are people who are not connected to a community like ours. And so, of course, and with the growth trajectories, of course we need more churches. But what kinds of churches? I'll summarize it in this final remark or, or quotation, which points to Jesus, who really is the true salt who gets into our pores, and the light who lifts our mood, and, and the, the architect and the builder of the city that is ours forever. And it's this, and let, let these words be our lead into communion as David Filson comes forward to lead us. Our church and any church that we're part of, planting, starting, supporting, would be a church where doors are open everywhere to, weary, to a weary world outside and that would say and communicate and live in this way to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Welcome to the table. Let Jesus salt you there. Grace and peace.